I want to introduce you to the cast of characters for this final scripture reading this morning. The first character is Ahab, who is the king of Israel during this time. And according to, according to 1 Kings, Ahab was not just king, he was the worst king. Of all the kings, he was, he was the gold standard of bad, all right? He's the worst king. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. Have you ever heard the term Jezebel applied to a woman? This is the, pers- this is the Jezebel that makes that term an insult. She is from Phoenicia. She's a devotee of the Canaanite god Baal. Then there is Naboth. And Naboth is simply the Israelite unfortunate enough to own a vineyard next to Ahab's palace. Then there is the prophet Elijah, who is the prophet of the Lord, Yahweh, the God who made heaven and earth and brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. And finally, and most importantly, is the Lord, God himself, Yahweh, the true king of Israel. Listen now to this reading from 1 Kings. Later, the following events took place. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard so that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. Ahab went home, sullen and resentful, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you my ancestral inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. His wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. His wife Jezebel said to him, do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food and be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly. Seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Just as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the assembly. The two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him. And the scoundrels brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel 
heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab set out to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to recap the story quickly, because sometimes it gets a little lost there. I get lost saying Jezreelite that often, so I want to just recap the story for you. Ahab, the king of Israel, has a palace a winter palace as it was, and next to that winter palace, there is a man named Naboth who has a vineyard. And Ahab wants that vineyard because it's convenient, it's close to the palace. And so, so Ahab goes to Naboth and offers to buy the vineyard. He says, I'll give you a good price for it, or I'll give you an even nicer vineyard. And Naboth says no to this Naboth says, no, this is, my, this is my family farm. I can't get rid of that. It reminds me of farmers I have known. I, I haven't ever known a farmer who wasn't attached to their land. I haven't ever known a farmer who would willingly let go of the land. And, and not just because they aren't making any more of it, but because they often see it as something they want to pass down to their family. Maybe something they receive from their family. And that's what Naboth says. He says, this is my family farm. I can't sell this to you. And so Ahab, even though he's king, still he takes no for an answer. And Ahab, basically he goes home and he throws a fit. You know, my images of of Ahab stomping down the hallway and he goes in his bedroom and he slams the door and he lays on the bed and he turns his his face and he faces the wall and and he won't get up to eat. He won't come out of his room. He's, He's basically just throwing a fit. And Jezebel comes to Ahab and says, why are you so upset? And he tells her and she says, get up, get something to eat. I'll take care of that for you. And she does. In a scheming, underhanded way, she she brings Naboth to trial on on false, trumped-up charges, and he is stoned to death, and Ahab gets his vegetable garden. But on Ahab's way to claim it, to take possession of it, the prophet of God shows up. Elijah shows up. The judicial system has been manipulated and Naboth has been found guilty even though he was innocent. It was all neat and tidy and legal. But then the prophet of the Lord shows up. Elijah shows up and Ahab knows the moment he sees Elijah. I can't think of an example where 
Elijah shows up and Ahab wasn't in trouble. I really can't. Ahab knows there's trouble the moment he sees Elijah. And Elijah says, you're not going to get away with this. Even the king is accountable to the heavenly king. It's a pretty compelling story. Even as straightforwardly told as that, it is a pretty compelling story. Even if you brought it forward into our time, it is a compelling story. It's the story of wrong done by the powerful and the rich and the wealthy to the, to the poor and the innocent. It's the kind of drama we might like in a movie. You could tease it out, stretch it out for an hour and a half, and, and you could be good to go. But there's a deeper meaning here, too. And I promise if you'll take a time to listen to me, this will pay off in the end, okay? Because the thing to remember here is there is a deeper meaning. It wasn't just because of some attachment, some emotional attachment, that Naboth didn't want to sell his land. God brought the people of Israel up out of slavery in Egypt. God led them into the promised land. And then the land was parceled out by families. Every family got a little bit of land. Every family, you might say, got a homestead. They all had a little plot, the good things of the land. They had access to the wealth and the produce of the land. It was a way of ensuring that everyone would have enough, that, that there would be some equality and some justice in the society. And it was all ordained by God. The people did not decide when they entered the promised land that that was the way they were going to do it. No, they heard God tell them that that was how they were to do it. And you read the Old Testament, you read the law, and you read the prophets, and this principle comes up over and over again, that Israel was to be a special people, a unique people, and that all were to have enough. And that was preserved by giving everyone a bit of land. They had to work it and till it and harvest it. They had to put their blood, sweat, and tears into it. But the possibility was there and the possibility was open to them. And in order to maintain that possibility for your children, it was important that you took the land that you received from your parents and you passed it down to your children. It was so important that in the Old Testament we find where the Israelites are told if you have to sell your land, if someone gets into trouble, if someone gets into debt, if someone has a big if someone has to sell land, don't sell the land. But if you have to sell the land, it's preferable that you sell, sell it to someone else in your extended family, that the land remain in the family. And then the Old Testament goes even further because it says if someone sells land every 50 years, it's all supposed to reset. All the homesteads go back to the families that originally had them. The land is sacred. The land is the promised land. The land is a gift from God given to Israel equally. And there are protections there that they might not lose it. That was part of God's original plan for Israel. The king was not part of the original plan. The people lived under the direct rule of God. And when there was a crisis, God would raise up, God would raise someone up to, to lead them in defending themselves. But the people wanted to be like everyone else. The people of Israel wanted to be like the other countries around them. Did you have a time when you were a kid when you desperately wanted to be like everyone else? 
And then maybe later on as you get older, you realize that maybe that wasn't such a good... Did no one else have this happen to them? Really? All right, thank you. Thank you. One brave person raised their hand. Talking to you now. All right. So the Israelites look around, and even though they're ruled by God, they want a human king. And God says, that's not such a good idea. But they keep begging and pleading, and, and God, like, God, like a parent, eventually gives in. But the king in Israel was not meant to be like the king in other places. The king in Israel is meant to be one who, who spends the majority of his time reading the word of God, gets seeped in the word of God. The king is to be God's agent on earth, upholding God's justice and righteousness, protecting the poor and the widow and the orphan. The king is to be the shepherd over God's people, not to take advantage of them, not to shear them as close as they could, but to look out for them. And so when Ahab allows Jezebel, and note that, that Jezebel, Jezebel didn't originally worship Yahweh, I don't think Jezebel ever worshipped Yahweh. Jezebel worships a foreign god named Baal. And because she worships this foreign god, she has no idea of Israel's history with their god and of what's important to that god and thus what is important to Israel. And so Jezebel comes in and she has no problem twisting things to get what she wants, corrupting the institutions to get what she wants. One of the reasons God was so jealous of idols, one of the reasons God was so opposed to idol worship was not just that you were worshiping another God, but the values of that worship would bring into Israel. Okay, so where, where am I going with this? It's a nice story, but how is it relevant? Sometimes as a church, sometimes as a pastor at least, what I hear is that we need to be more concerned about saving people's souls and, and not stick our noses into the world's business. That we should be here in our churches and in our homes with our piety and our prayers, but just leave it to other people to work out what's going on in the world. And I would say to you that that is a form of, that is a form of devotion that Elijah would not recognize. You see, Elijah is there because, because the norms have been trampled. Elijah is there because there has been a great injustice, not just the criminal injustice of Naboth falsely accused, falsely convicted, falsely executed, but the social and economic justice that goes with what's going on with the land that Naboth had and the way the king and the queen have reached out and snatched it. Sometimes you'll hear that the Bible doesn't use the phrase economic and social justice. And you know what? It doesn't. It really doesn't. That's a word we use. That's not a word the Bible uses. It's a word that we use because we're trying to get back to something, the, the biblical sense of justice. The biblical sense of justice takes economic justice and social justice and criminal justice and it's just one big seamless whole. The Bible doesn't see a difference between criminal justice and social justice. It all is linked together. We've used the term social and economic justice because too often in America in 2016 when we talk about justice we only think about criminal justice. 
That's when we talk, you know, when we talk about, we talk about law and order, we just think about criminal justice. The Bible has a broader view. Elijah has a broader view. And Elijah was called by God to uphold God's justice, to speak out on behalf of God's justice. If you read the stories of Jesus, what you find is a Messiah, a Savior, who is standing consciously and very strongly in that same line of thought. Jesus, he's more than a prophet like Elijah, but Jesus is at the very least a prophet like Elijah who stands up and speaks out on behalf of God's justice. And as Jesus's followers, we are called to do the same. We're to see those places where God's justice is being trampled and we are to speak out for what is right, to do what we can. Now, I am hesitant to give examples here, okay? Because we can all agree that we need to, we need to model the world. We need, we, need to, we need to work for society that is more in line with what God wants. We just disagree with exactly what that looks like or exactly how we shall go about it. Nonetheless, I'm about to step in it. And I think it's because God wants me to. It may just be me, but I think it's because God wants me to. Elijah spoke up against the taking of the land because it was the possession of the land by all these families that allowed Israel to be a land of possibility. It meant that everyone could have enough. You had to work with it. You had to put blood, sweat, and tears into it, but it was available to you. I shared this sermon with my grandma, and she said, so this really means I should never sell that land. And I said, well, I can, that's, that's one way. I said, the other thing, though, is the land, that was the possibility for everyone to have what they needed to enjoy the good things in life. I said, I think the way we commonly do this, and this is about where I'm about to step in it. This is the, I said, I don't have any land. Literally, I have never owned a home. I've always lived on, I've always lived at your place, so to speak. And yet I have access to the good things in life because of my education. I would assert that with Kansas, as we wrestle with what to do with education, we might want to remember, we might want to, to think about, is that perhaps the way that in our society we assure that people can have access to the good things in life? And is education more than just a political issue? Is it a justice issue? Is it God's issue? There are a lot of places where this story apply. And if you don't like that one, find one of your own. But I think that one is worth thinking about, especially where we find ourselves today. Amen.